Welcome again to our uh, now our fifth large group of the semester for Reformed University Fellowship. As I mentioned before, my name is Nick Brancher, and I am the campus minister for RUF. Tonight, we're continuing on in our series this semester in First John, called "That You May Know." Uh, we've called it that because the recipients of John's letter seem to be confused about a few things: who Jesus was, what he did and what it means for their lives. And John writes this letter to, com- to clarify these issues and that they may know the truth. Tonight we'll be looking at 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I think that's going to get projected behind me as I read it, um, but in case not, you can flip there. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Let's read that together. Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Uh, Dear God, thank you for your word, for speaking to us and allowing us to know you. I, I do pray that you would open our eyes to the eternal reality that is beyond this world that is passing away. Oh Lord, we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so as a recap of where we've been, John, who's a close friend of Jesus and one of his closest disciples who wrote this letter, He starts this letter by announcing some really good news that Jesus had preached and embodied in his life, death, and resurrection. The God of all light, he has told us, has rescued us from the darkness of sin to bring us into the light by the blood of Jesus. In our passage last week, John challenged his readers to examine if they believed this truth. Do you really believe that God has brought us in the light? And if so, then they ought to be walking in the light, loving as Jesus loved and obeying God as he obeyed God. Tonight, John introduces us to a third test uh, for whether we have true faith in Jesus. Do we love the world or do we love God? Uh, That's actually right out of verse 15. Here's the claim John is making then. You have to choose what you're going to love in this life. Fundamentally, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, whether it's your first time at RUF, millionth time, you grew up in the church or not, whatever, uh, all people on earth are going to have to choose what they're going to love, who they're going to love in this life. Uh, In my favorite movie of all time, period, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, the plot, some of you may have heard me talk about this movie, the plot centers around the, the life of a woman named Holly Golightly. And Holly is terrified, absolutely terrified of loving anything because she knows something true about the world. And it's this, whatever she loves, whatever she decides to set her affections on, it will own her to some degree. Uh, To love anything is to have your identity tied to how that thing thinks about you, perceives you, judges you, estimates you. Uh, You do in fact belong to it. Uh, She has a cat for this very reason. She has a cat that she refuses to name. She just calls it cat um, and maintains that it is like a wild stray cat. 
Um, and that's why she doesn't name it or own it because she knows that to do so would risk that relationship. She knows that if the cat runs off or maybe it dies, like it's going to reflect on her, right? It's the cat can reject her and therefore she will feel, uh, less, uh, lesser. She will not feel like she's good enough. Um, and this bleeds over, not just, you know, about cats, but into the romance that's at the center of the film with a character named Paul Varjak. Uh, she loves him deep down, but she rejects his advances uh, because to even learn his name, she calls him Fred instead of his actual name, Paul. That would mean that he would have power over her identity. Uh, he would determine her sense of worth. What if he breaks up with her one day or cheats on her or says something mean or turns out to not be so great? Her answer is simply just to not love anything. She determines that it is the only way to keep her heart completely safe. But then in the climactic scene in the movie, Paul delivers what I believe is maybe the greatest line in cinema history in an attempt to get her to realize the error of her ways. He says this, you call yourself a free spirit, a wild thing, and you're terrified somebody's going to stick you in a cage. Well, baby, you're already in a cage. You built it yourself. And it's not bounded in the West or in the East. It's wherever you go. Because no matter where you run, you just keep running into yourself. I mean, what a great line. Uh, She has to love something, right? But what Paul is saying is she has to love something. She's exchanged vulnerability for safety. But in the process, she's traded away her humanity. To love something, to love things is to be human. And John is putting before us these two things we can love, the world or God. The question she is facing is the same one that we all face. What can we love that will not fail us? John is going to present us with two choices, and we have to pick in this test. Who's it going to be, God or the world? And here's the fundamental idea that John is trying to get across in this passage. Because God and his will lasts, we must not love the world. If you are a note taker tonight and you like the, the big idea, this, that's the thing that I'm going to try and hammer home tonight is that simple truth. Because God and his will last, we must not love the world. And the question is why? Why? Uh, John is actually going to convince us. Uh, how does he plan to convince us of that reality that, that because God and his will last, we should not love the world. We must not love the world. Well, John's going to give us three reasons And we're going to look at them in turn. There are three reasons here that John says we shouldn't love the world. He says this, if we love the world, the love of the father is not in us. That's from verse 15. The things of the world are not from the father. We'll revisit these. You don't have to pin them down right now. The things of the world are not of the father. That's verse 16. And the current world is passing away. Uh, These three things John is going to explain to us tonight as reasons we should pick God to love God over the world. So let's start with that first point. That first point, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Look with me at verse 15. Look with me at verse 15. Here we are commanded plainly to not love the world or the things in it. And presented with the choice I mentioned earlier, the love of the Father or of the world. We'll return to what John means by the world, right? I I keep saying that word over and over again. Uh, we'll return what John means uh, by the world and the things in it in a moment. 
The rest of the passage is an argument for why the world is not a good choice. But uh, so we'll unpack in our next two points what the world is and what the things in it are. But let's focus on this first point, as John does, on what we would lose if we chose to love the world. What would we lose? What, what is this love of the Father? Uh, the love of the Father uh, is not in someone who makes the choice to love the world. And so what is that? There was a similar phrase we encountered last week, the love of God. This phrase can mean three things. It can still mean three things here. It could refer to the love God has for the believer. It could be the love, a love that someone possesses that's like God's love that you would then share with other people. Or it could be the love for God the love someone possesses that they uh, give to God, that they uh, have for him. As I said last week, the context of this test is helpful in determining which interpretation John intends for that. The choice John has put before us in the front part of the second verse of 15, right? There's two sentences in verse 15. The second sentence, the front part of it, he's talking about what we love, right? The world. On the one hand, he's saying, what do you love? You can love the world, And then it would stand to reason then that the love of the father, the opposite choice that he presents in the second sentence of verse 15, the opposite choice of that is you can also love the world. Not also, you or you could love the world, right? The world is on the other, or sorry, the world is on one hand and the father is on the other. Throughout this chapter, John is inviting us to look essentially at the horizontal dimension of our lives, right? Uh, Our Uh, For one example, our relationship to God's commands. That's what we looked at last week uh, regarding to how we are to walk through life. What's our relationship horizontally to our neighbor in that sense? And also, what's our relationship to our neighbor horizontally in terms of the love we have for them? Those are the two tests we looked at last week. And And he's saying that as you look horizontally, it will actually tell you how your relationship with God is vertically. Right? They don't determine, they, they, they reveal what is true about your relationship with God. They don't determine it. You don't earn a vertical relationship by doing a horizontal relationship, but it does tell you what you truly believe about God. They reveal the truth. And this means we should understand verse 15 is saying, essentially to paraphrase, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. You do not possess love for the father if you love the world but what does it mean to have love for the father in us who is this father john is positively pushing us to love again we'll get to the world that john negatively doesn't want us to to love but we've got to unpack and put before ourselves the vision of this father who is it that we would lose out on if we were simply reading through the letter in one go we'd already know We would already have built the foundation. John in chapter one has been telling us about who this father is uh, the whole time. He says there are two, or there's there's one big thing that John has been hammering home that that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's from one six. We know that to be in darkness is to practice sin and not know the truth, to practice sin and not know the truth. And therefore there's two dimensions when he says that God is light, there are two dimensions of that. Right? We've heard this before. There's an ethical one and an intellectual one. That God is both intellectually light and he's also the light of morality, of, of ethics. 
The ethical ramifications of God being light means that God doesn't ever do wrong. Never. He never believes the wrong thing. He never messes up. He never assesses the situation wrong. He is all the good in the universe and all the good that comes about in the universe is so because it reflects the goodness of God. To call anything good or beautiful is just to say it looks or resembles God. And if this positively means that God is pro-good, he also cannot tolerate what is bad. It's worth noting that this is where Christians get our sense of justice from, right? That God is good. When we talk about the fact that God is on the side of oppressed peoples, when the prophets cry out over injustice, over rich people taking advantage of poor people, of um, whatever you have uh, in front of you, whatever, wherever there is oppression, poverty, greed, uh, and injustice, God is on the side of the weak and the poor and the needy because he opposes any leader, system, or structure that is responsible for injustice or wrongdoing. Um, that means that we see that even today uh, as people um, oppress certain groups, um, whether that's based on skin color, as we've seen in the killing of George Floyd, uh, or anybody else who happens to feel or receive injustice based on skin color, creed, religion, any of those things. God is not a God of injustice. He is a God of all goodness and truth. He is the source of all good. He's also the source of all knowledge. Whatever is true in this world is true because God has made it so. Uh, There are impersonal truths. Some of you guys study those impersonal truths, like the laws of engineering or the scientific method. Those things are reliable truths because God upholds them. If God stopped making gravity work, it would stop working right now. That is the claim that we make when we say that God is light. Uh, He built them into the world, but he's also the author of the world story. He's also the arbiter of personal truths. He has ultimate knowledge about this world and how it works and, and its story, where it's headed. All competing narratives for, for instance, why we are here or what our purpose is, those are all lies. Those are all in darkness compared to the one that God is telling us in scriptures. And it is, it is this God the God who has the definitive word, the definitive story about who we are and what we are to do, is this God that at the foundation of the world made a deep and abiding promise called a covenant with our great, great, great grandparents, many greats, Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, He asked them to trust his goodness, to trust his sovereignty and to not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But our first parents broke that covenant and they plunged humanity into darkness with their rebellion. And we, if we're honest with ourselves, continue in that rebellion even today. Every time we determine for ourselves what is good, even though God has told us the opposite with our money, with our bodies, with our relationships, every time we determine for ourselves that what we want is good instead of what God wants, we decide that we do not want to submit to God's authority He is holding out on us, is what we think. This God should have nothing to do with us then. In our rebellion, there's no good reason 
why God would love a people who so clearly and totally disdain the light. But as John has told us in 117, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. God the Father has graciously and lovingly planned our redemption to bring us back into the light and relationship with him with the help of God the Son as our advocate and the Spirit as the power that raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. When I was growing up, uh, my mom had a ceramic uh, deer. She had like these three ceramic deer. There was one that was like a big mother and then like these two baby deer. And as providence would have it, uh, this would, this deer set would sit below our TV stand. And this was also the place where my father and I liked to wrestle uh, as you know, young, as a young boy likes to do, I, I like to wrestle my dad. And usually my father would take the deer set and he would put them on a nearby like table or just somewhere else for a little bit while we wrestled. Uh, but this strategy, uh, does not work in sneak attacks, which was my own, my only real opportunity to like get one over on my father. When you're like six, it's like, He's a grown man, you know, and so you got to you got to take what you can get. So one day, I sneak attacked my dad uh, in a headlock, what I hoped was a headlock, in our usual wrestling spot. But then he shrugged me off, and I came crashing down to the floor and landed on the ear of one of the baby deers, and it cracked off, uh, broke off its ear. And here's the reality: my mother would have had every right to be angry at me for breaking her things. It was a known rule in our house. We've been warned many times to move the deer and to be mindful of them, but I had failed to do so. When my mom discovered what I had done, I was ready, like, it was me and my dad standing there. I'm ready to just get, like, my just hide chewed out. And instead, uh, my father told my mom that he had forgotten to move the deer and that he was sorry and that he would replace it. Now, I'm not condoning lying. This is not a story about how my dad did the right thing, but it is a story about the fact that my dad took on my mother's wrath, right? My dad took the cost relationally of the bad thing that I had done. He took the cost of my mistake out of love for me. I, in that moment, inherit my dad's squeaky clean record of not being a deer breaker. And my dad takes my soiled record of being a deer breaker and I get my mom's love um, without her wrath. To love God is for this to be our primary identity, but on a cosmic scale to believe that Jesus has gained uh, for us the righteousness of God that we could not earn for ourselves in dying for our sins on the cross that he has become the ceramic deer breaker on our behalf, even though we rightly deserve God's wrath for the ways that we have rebelled. And the joy of this relationship is why we should not love the world. That's what John is saying. He's putting up this love, this God, who is all these things. He is the source of all all moral goods, all beauty, all truth, And that God who should have nothing to do with us has also made a way for us to have relationship with him. It's the most glorious news that he can think of to present to us. And he says, uh, you should choose that over the world. 
Here's the, here's the next question then. What's the world? Uh, what is the world? What, why can't we love both God and the world? Well, this brings us to our second point. The things of the world are not from the Father. Uh, let me rephrase our first point. Remember, our first point was if, you, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. We can't love both things, but, but why not? And he's going to say, the things of the world are not from the Father. Uh, look with me at verse 16. This is where John says, uh, the things of the world are not from the Father. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here John tells us, with a slight digression in the middle, that all things in the world come from the world. Uh, This is worth noting because it contrasts with the point we just made, right? All good comes from God, right? To call God light, to have made that point ahead of time. When John says that all the world's things come from the world, he's saying that they cannot come from God and that therefore they are evil. The chief characteristic of all things that belong to the world is that they are not God the Father, and therefore they are not good ethically, and they are deceitful. They are lies. In short, the world and the things in it are evil. Now, at this point, we may be tempted to define worldliness in a narrow way that then excuses ourselves from conviction, right? Everyone has sought to think about worldliness. Oh, yes, okay, so the world, the world is evil, and that is those people over there. It's so very tempting to think about worldliness as, as being limited. Um, and, and there's really two ways to misinterpret worldliness, to misinterpret the evil that John is putting in front of us as our other option to love. And this is how people do it. First, people define the evil of the world as the created order. Uh, improperly, we think of it as, as what is physical, um, one way to d- describe this, the, the, the term for it is asceticism, if you've ever heard that word. The ascetic lifestyle is essentially to believe that the physical world, from mountain landscapes to the food that you eat to even the very body that you inhabit, all of these things are evil. And, and friends and family, uh, even friends and family that are viewed as worldly attachments are to be abandoned for the sake of knowing God. Um, in this kind of worldview, one should never get married and you should always have your, your, your mind on God. And um, you know, if you get married, then you're gonna be concerned with your spouse and with marital things. Um, and John, does, or sorry, Paul does say something like that in 1 Corinthians 7, but he says that it's also still good, right? And uh, to, to make this the point about worldliness, to say that the world is, the physical world is to miss the point that John's made elsewhere, uh, particularly in the same verse about the world being comprised of inward desires and pride, not external realities. But this also ignores the many Psalms that sing praises about God's creation. It ignores Paul's instructions in Romans 1.20 that God's power and his glory are manifested in his created order. Uh, it also ignores the teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection at the end of all things will include the resurrection of our physical bodies, just as it did Jesus's. Uh, It is not, what what worldliness is, is not 
uh, the, the reality of the fact that we have a physical world. God created all things good. There's a fallen part of that in the world, the fact that tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that exist. But the world was created to be good. God does not hate our bodies and he's not delivering us from the prison uh, of, our, of ourselves. The second way people misinterpret the world, they do it incompletely, right? Uh, if one is ascetically, this is the incomplete way to interpret this passage. They make worldliness way too narrow. This is what happens. They, uh, people want to think of worldliness as uh, doing certain dances, having certain apps on your phone, listening to certain songs, saying certain words, seeing certain movies. They make worldliness into drinking or smoking or gambling. They make it into some sort of vice, some sort of uh, marker that they can point to that they don't struggle with usually, right? That they don't engage in. And they say, that's worldliness. I'm not worldly. Ipso facto, I love God and you don't. Um, there's a temptation to reduce worldliness to a few rules that are easy to abide by, right? To a few things that, that you live by, a code that you live by that everyone else doesn't. Um, sometimes this also means that people think of worldliness as being caught up in political business or government business. Uh, you know, the, the spheres of life work. Uh, money is seen as evil and the government and all authorities and powers on the earth are inherently evil. Um, and therefore, there's no sense in engaging in business or commerce or any such nonsense because they belong to the world, that evil world, and all the things in it. But John's view of the world is much more robust than this limited, narrow view of the world, of, of what's worldly. Uh, John's going to blow that up and say, the world is comprised of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, these are not limiting descriptions with a narrow view of a few struggles with sin, with sin. They are symptoms of a life in rebellion against God. Uh, think about this. The desires of the flesh seems to describe sinful passions that arise inwardly, right? If you think about it, there's the flesh, the thing that's in you, that's part of you from your own desires this, uh, that contradict God's. This is the desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes seem to describe passions that, you, that arise when you view them, right? That you've, you've seen something and you are incited by that thing that you, and see, that you see to do it or to participate in it or whatever. Um, these desires come from the outside, not the inside. And the pride of life, which could be translated uh, the boasting of what one has and does. Uh, that's how the NIV translated, translates to this. But basically, this is a life that is marked by self-justification. right? This is a, a, the pride of life is a life that is marked by self-justification. It's believing your life is good enough. Believing that uh, your life is good enough usually by looking down at what others lack, right? You say you're good enough by looking down at what others lack, whether that's financially, morally, or socially. Thank goodness I'm not like that weird person at RUF who like 
I don't know, talks my ear off or something. I don't know who it, what it is for you. Thank goodness I'm not like that person that went to that party this weekend, probably got COVID and it would serve them right. You know, like I don't know, I don't know who it is for you. I don't know how we do this, but there are there is a temptation in all of us, I think, to skew this way in the world to have the pride of life, thinking we are good enough and others are not. Martin Lloyd Jones, uh, Cam, will you hit the next button? I included a I included this quote so you can read it with me. It's kind of long. Martin Lloyd Jones captures what the world is excellently excellently in his comment on this verse from a book called Life in Christ. Uh, he says this: the text and the whole teaching of the Bible shows that it must mean being the world. What what does worldliness mean? It must mean the organization and the mind and the outlook of mankind as it ignores God and does not recognize him as it lives a life independent of him, a life that is based upon this world and this life only. It means that the outlook that has rebelled against God and turned its back upon him. It means, in other words, the typical kind of life that is being lived by the average person today who has no thought of God but thinks only of this world and life, who thinks in terms of time and is governed by certain instincts and desires. It is the whole outlook upon life that is exclusive of God. Anyone and everyone can be guilty of worldliness. It's exhibited by our desires that conflict with God's as he's stated them in his word. It it, it surfaces when you are passive aggressive with your roommate. It surfaces when you harbor a grudge against a friend. It surfaces when you decide to look at porn or to get drunk or type something condescending about the other political party on Facebook, something snide that you hope your uncle sees. Um, you know, it's, it, it's these places where the rubber meets the road where we decide, yeah, I know that God has his ways, but whether by being incited by something we see and we want or something that we feel deeply that we deserve, or it's something that makes us feel better and someone else less than. John is saying that we cannot live a life that is enslaved to those desires and claim to love God. That these two things are incompatible. Uh, Because God and his will last, we must not love the world. And that's because of two things, right? So we've said, if we love the world from verse 15, the love of the Father is not in us. And the things of the world are not from the Father. John's put this very starkly to us. So I hope it's obvious now. Can we mute that? Does anybody want to mute that? I can do it. I'll mute it. It's fine. And we're good. And we're back. So I hope it's obvious, right? I hope it's obvious to us now uh, what the world is, right? What the world is and why it's incompatible with loving God. But here's the question. Why should we choose God over the things of the world? This is the last lingering point that John's going to address. Why, why should you choose to honor God with your body over having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Why should you choose to honor God with your hard-earned time, talents, and treasure instead of, uh, why should you choose to honor him, maybe giving them away or uh, with no benefit to your academic, social, or career success, right? What does it look like for you to be not stingy with your money, with your time, with your abilities, and instead help other people 
at great cost to yourself? Uh, Why should you forgive your neighbor who has wronged you when it feels so much better to harbor hate towards them? Right? When it feels so good to talk bad about them to other people, why should you stop? Uh, This brings us to our last point uh, in verse 17. The world is passing away. Look at me at verse 17. Look at me there. John here reveals the truth about the world. It's passing away. It's passing away. It is a shaky foundation for life, and it cannot last. Sure, it promises big to go our own way apart from God and do what we want always seems like a good idea at the time. It always does, or else nobody would do it, right? If sin didn't seem good, we wouldn't do it. If it didn't seem fun or interesting or make us happy, at least for a moment, none of us would bother doing it. Uh, No one would ever sin if sin does not seem appealing at the time, the best option at the time. But here's, here's the reality that John is trying to hammer home, that he wants you to know about loving the world. The world is passing away. If you chase after success, others' talents are just going to become obstacles for you, and there's always going to be somebody ahead of you on the ladder that you need to knock off. If you chase sexual pursuits, you're going to write checks that your body can't cash. You're going to make promises with people, with someone that you ultimately cannot deliver on. You don't know if that's what you really want. If you chase after security, uh, you can watch greed take over your life. Right? You, you then have to constantly worry about not just getting money, but keeping the money that you have, making sure that nothing touches it. You're going to become stingy and greedy and cold. The world makes a very, very terrible lover. No amount of security, no amount of success, no amount of significance is going to give you what you really desire. Because here's the reality, it can be taken from you at a moment's notice. No matter what you chase after in this life, you can't take it with you. This is most clear in our death, right? This is why John says, uh, the will of God abides forever, or whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world's passing away, at least in your own death, at some level, you cannot take whatever you are working for in the world, whatever you want to amass for yourself, you cannot take it with you. It stays behind when you die. This means on some level, the Holly Go Lightly is kind of right. She's kind of right not to name her cat. She's even right really not to trust Paul Varjak. Uh, those things can disappoint her, right? These, these things can disappoint her. She's right to have assessed the world and thought to herself, man, I can't be sure. What if I love Paul, but then he dies? The news, he will one day. Like that's the crazy thing is she's right. But here's the good news. Here's the reality that, that, that we don't want to miss. Not even death, not even death can separate you from God's love. Not even death. It's the one thing, it's the one thing that will abide. Those who do God's will, those who are loved by him on the basis of Christ's blood, uh, on the basis of his sacrifice and his taking of our sin, those who love him and obey him in response are bound for glory. And this ought to drive us deeper into obedience, deeper into seeing the reality of what we are working for in our study, in our work, in our sleep, in our daily lives.
1952, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick uh, stepped off the beach at Catalina Island and began to swim. She was determined to swim uh, to the shore of, the, of mainland California. And she was actually really experienced in long-distance swimming. She was the first woman in the world to swim the English Channel back and forth, to swim to France and back. Uh, and as she was swimming, it was a foggy and chilly day, and so she started to cramp up, and it started to get very, very hard for her to make the whole distance. And she, her coach is in the water and telling her, like, you got to keep going, you got to keep going. The boats are all nearby, and they're telling her, you just got to keep going. You're getting so close. You're getting so close. And eventually, uh, she actually just gives up and says, I'm done. She pulls out. She stopped actually, and because no one would like help her, she actually just stops swimming and is like starting to drown. And they like pulled her out, right? Uh, the boat's made for the shore. And here's what she discovers as soon as she's taken out of the water. She was a mere half mile away from the shore. Uh, the next day, she gave a news conference. And what she said was this, I don't want to make excuses I'm the one who asked to be pulled out, but I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Christian, you can see the shore. You can see the finish line. John is putting it in front of you and telling you, the one who does the will of the Father will abide forever. That, that, that the reality of the world, uh, the reality of, of life, not necessarily the world, we've been talking about the world the whole time, the reality of life is this, that you are bound for glory, that every step you take every day that you are alive, you're getting closer and closer to being united with the God who is light and who is so good. Every day is another stroke closer to the God for whom your soul was made. Don't lose heart. Don't stop fighting the flesh. Don't stop fighting the temptation of the world. And remember, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. The things of the world are passing away. The things of the world are not from the Father, and the world is passing away. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I implore you to put your faith in Jesus. That one day you will die. One day all the things that you are working toward will come to nothing. And the reality is you need God's grace in your life. That that is what it will abide. The world is a very poor substitute for knowing God. Because God and his will last, we must not love the world. Let's pray.